Welcome to Be Customer-Led, where we'll explore how leading experts in customer and employee experience are navigating organizations through their own journey to be customer-led and the actions and behaviors employees and businesses exhibit to get there. And now, your host, Bill Stagos. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Be Customer-Led. I'm your host, Bill Stakos. Really, really interesting guest for everyone this week. Christopher Willis is Acrolinx's Chief Marketing Officer. He's responsible for all aspects of the company's marketing strategy. Now, he's a specialist in content governance, AI, and pipeline management. And he's got over 20 years of experience growing companies in the technology sector. He's got a lot of great expertise before that. And he's just a thought leader in this space. And we're so excited to have you on the show. Christopher, Welcome, welcome to Be Customer Led. It's great to have you on. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm excited to hear that guy that you just described talk. He does address. <laughs> I, I know effect for a fact that's you because we had a really great conversation as an intro call, and I'm excited to get into this topic. So today's story arc is around making content better via artificial intelligence and its impact on customer experience. Something that you think or two about. Before we get into that, Chris, you've got a really great journey, and I would love for you just to share that journey with listeners. And what were some of the differentiating factors maybe in your career? Well, I mean, I think I have a less traditional background. A lot of my peers, especially today, most CMOs come from a very technical background. I sit in a number of CMO groups where almost everybody has a computer science degree. I went to Gettysburg in the 90s. We didn't have a computer science department. I actually have a well-rounded liberal arts background with a major in theater and a minor in philosophy. So didn't really know what I was going to do. I did have the benefit of uh, growing up with computers. My mother made sure that I had computers growing up, coded on a Commodore 64. And when I, remember I that. Oh, yeah. got out of college, my opportunity to enter technology was was actually through an assistant role. It wasn't a technical role. It was moving into a business, working with the CEO, uh, mm-hmm. learning a lot while I sat at that desk, beginning my coding journey, and then moving into a more development-oriented role in a startup. Took me to KPMG in Europe, where I moved from a project role into a sales role and, and started selling internet development workshops in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And then came back into project management at a company that we started in the 90s, late 90s, that we had to sell for. And so you learn really quickly, regardless of your role, pretty much everybody's a salesperson. And that drove me into a series of roles in technology, marketing and sales that led to eventually becoming a marketing leader. I was largely self-made, but got really lucky at an experience several years ago when we hired a new president of the company who had a, a history of CMO roles at very large companies. And he taught me all the things that I didn't know. Well, some of the things I didn't know, I guess I'm probably still learning Mm. about really being in my role. And when I made it to Acrolinks, where I am now, you come in and you think, what would I do next entering this business? And what's the next thing I'm going to do? And I would have told you several years ago that the next thing I'm going to do is is be a CEO because mm-hmm. that's the progression. And then we hired my current boss and I learned that I don't know anything about being a CEO and the learning continues. And that's where you see roles like chief pipeline officer enter into the vocabulary around me, pushing me into areas that I, I've been involved in, but not responsible for in the past. 
And that continuation of growth has been really important and really exciting to me. You think that when you get to a certain level, that's where you that's where you are. You've learned everything you need to learn. But I think one of the things that's really exciting about my career is that there has been a c- continual learning experience getting me to where I am and to where I'm going to go next. I love that. And one, kudos to you for having the courage to say, even as a, as a, as a C-suite executive, to still say, I'm still learning all the time. Not many do that. So thanks for that authenticity and, and, and honesty. Let's talk a little bit about... So I, that's a really interesting journey. And like I... I, I, I hearken back a little bit. At one point when I was about to report in a CEO, it's like, not that I'm not ready for it, but I actually think that we should report into the COO and have more impact there. It takes actually some real self-awareness to like just look at yourself in the mirror and say, this is not the right time, right? And I still have a ways to go versus kind of forging ahead and say, I'll learn as I go, which as a C- CEO sometimes isn't sort of the best approach, right? So no. I'm sure I'm sure you'll get there, but. No, and I mean, that's the thing is I, I've worked at companies that either I've been involved in the start of or that has been started by a founder. And founder CEOs are amazing. And they're, they're the, the backbone of the startup industry. Mm. But there are things that a, a more advanced CEO knows that I had never been exposed to. Mm. Like <laughs> the, the KPIs that we measure this business on are, I mean, exciting and remarkable to me, probably not much to other people that have worked in much larger organizations, but things that I had not had exposure to that I now have exposure to that have changed my whole way of looking at the future. It just continues to be exciting. That's awesome. I love that. Always learning. Let's talk a little bit about what Acrolinks does and, and how, because it's really, you're doing some really interesting work in the AI and content space. Yeah, it's so this is an interesting business. Acrolinks is an AI powered software product that improves the quality fitness and impact of specifically enterprise content at scale. So our companies are the biggest technology companies, pharmaceutical companies, banks, and global manufacturers. And they have millions of pieces of content out there in the world. And what we've established in this space is that content in all of its forms matters. Each thing that you create has a purpose. And if we can help to increase the impact of that content, you increase business results. Mm. So our product takes in all of your content creation guidelines. So how you think you wanna create content, clarity, consistency, character, terminology, inclusiveness, emotion, and then governs the creation and or ownership of content. So the go forward of creating new content, we guide writers in real time to write the way that we've just established we want the company to write. But that's not super exciting. That's a thing that happens going forward. I also have a million pages of content that are sitting in a repository. And we can go back through that and align that now with clarity, consistency, and character of our business. And moving forward from there, now we have this perfect piece of content. And a byproduct of our of our solution is a score. We call it the Acrolink score. And that tells you how aligned you are with your guidelines. I've got a 95 document. Fantastic. Let's say it's a web page. And that means it's perfect. That means it's everything that I hope it is. It's using the right words, the right tone, the right style. It's inclusive. It's got the right emotion built into it. It's got everything that I hope it has. Mm-hmm. And I put it out into the world and it doesn't resonate with my audience. What do I do with that? And we now are enabling the connection with this post-production consumption analytics to see what content is performing 
so that you can go back into your repository and create more content like that. And so to the point of the name of the podcast, listening to your customers, how do they want to, how do they want to be communicated with? So we think we know, right? Like my job is to identify the tone of our company, we, the way that we communicate. That's part of what I do. I like to think that I'm good at it, but you don't really know you're good at it unless you can tie content to consumption mm -hmm. and end result. So I created, it's perfect. I put it out there. It's not converting. What can I learn from that? What am I doing wrong? What am I, how am I positioning in a way that's not resonating with my audience? Mm -hmm. And can I then go and iterate? And again, using the analytics that we have, identify pockets of content that do work. This, this whole collection of content over here, this part of the website is working magnificently. Let's take a look at some commonalities here. Let's identify what we're saying, how we're saying it, the emotion that we're using, the inclusiveness that we're using, the terminology that's in this. And if we take that and overlay that over another segment of content, can we get those same results? And the end result of all of this is essentially revenue. I mean, we had a, had a customer speak at our QBR several weeks ago, and the question was asked, how do you, how does your company measure what you do? And an answer would have been decreased bounce rates, increased conversion, mm -hmm. time on page. That wasn't the answer. The answer with no hesitation was revenue. I'm sorry, what? Go on. Well, if we create solid, good content, effective, impactful content, we drive business for the company. We see revenue go up or down based on the content we create. Fantastic. So you're saying that through the governance of content impact, you're driving your business. Yep. Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's very black and white. And I love that, that they're just bringing that in in such simple ways. I mean, the other stuff, right? Like, are people dropping out? How long are they on the page? All that stuff ultimately should lead to a number from a business perspective, that business outcome. You shouldn't be, drop offs aren't necessarily a business outcome. Right. right. That, that company's got their head screwed on straight as far as I'm concerned. So Acrolinks is a 20-year-old company. They clearly weren't doing this, I'm assuming, 20 years ago. Right. They may have pivoted at some point. Content has changed dramatically in that period of time. Now with the layover of AI, what do you think that has done to content creation, curation, and consumption? Like, How much of an impact have you seen AI have in that space? Yeah. I mean, this is AI does its best work at a large scale and content is a large scale activity in a business. The first thing though, is to get companies to realize that because content is a thing. And over the course of this conversation, we're going to say content so many times that the word isn't going to make sense anymore, but content is as simple as a, in a product, it's a single web page. It's text on a billboard. It's the script that drives your chat bot. It's long form eBooks and white papers. It's it's this one-to-many communication that we're creating in the business. What people are realizing is that it's, it's best when it feels one-to-one. -one. And how do you take something that's created by your entire employee base, at a, at, let's say at a 10,000-employee company, and make it feel one-to-one? -one? And that's where, that's where AI comes in. That's where you're able to, at that scale, turn thousands and thousands of people's work product into one cohesive package, one voice. And the companies that are doing that, that understand that, 
are the ones that are succeeding in the marketplace. Because, I mean, if you think about what we've gone through in the last couple of years, this whole digital shift we've been marketing for years, it actually happened. And now your, your touch points that you, that you own in the world might be the only way that you're communicating with your consumer audience. And if that's the case, then those who do it best and who have it aligned win. And the mistake that you make then is, cool, that's a marketing thing. Like I'm hearing you. I'm going to talk to my marketing team. Mm. But it's not because that's not the whole experience that a company delivers. You've got consideration, transaction, retention, and loyalty. Mm-hmm. So things prior to, like the product, like product documentation, like product manuals, like mm-hmm. educational content for using this product that then eventually leads into sales enablement and marketing content that then goes into post-sales service and support and the consistency that you need to have across that. Now we can tweak things like tone of voice. I might be a company that wants to be light and conversational in marketing, but clear and concise in service and support, but I'm still going to inherit things from the broader voice of the company. But Bill, here's the problem. Most companies don't think that way at all. There isn't somebody responsible for content that way. There, there's a role in a lot of companies that's the, the chief experience mm-hmm. owner. But that, again, comes down to sort of more of a marketing yeah. website role. Like I'm creating a customer journey. But the customer journey isn't just buying software or buying a product. It's the whole package. Yeah. And that's, that's where leveraging AI across your business, smart AI, they can differentiate who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, and what you need to say and how. That's where this starts to make it a real difference. In, in your view, do you, is that where you think the breakdown is? I mean, I mean, just kind of thinking about this conversation, there's so many companies out there that don't view content as an asset. They view it as an afterthought. Clearly, the company you were talking about it, use it as an asset because they're measuring revenue off of it, right? Like that's a clear sign to me that they view it that way. But back to your point around a lot of this sits in, in marketing. Maybe that is not viewed as something that's driving top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, or even sort of deep in a post-sales environment, loyalty and, and, and revenue creation. What do you think? Is it just, is it the journey view? Is it metrics? Is it is it, does it sit in the wrong place in an organization? Like, wh- what do you think that companies are largely missing on the experiential side, particularly when you're going to talk to them for the first time, maybe even, and saying, this is why you need this? Well, it's the, there's two things. One is the idea of silos in the business. And I'll come back to that because it's the less interesting one, super obvious. The other one is that when you try and have a conversation about content in a business today, and you say anything about costs, you're going to lose people because, Bill, I can save you money on the creation of your content at scale. And the first thing that you think is, cool, show me where I'm spending that money. Like where on my budget in my line items does it say content creation? And unless you're IBM outsourcing all of your content to agencies, you don't have that in your budget. I don't have it in my budget. It's the thing that people do when they go to work, we are all content creators mm. in emails, in the web page, web landing pages that we create, blog articles, product content, all of that, tech docs, all of this is content that you're paying for, but you're paying it in headcount. Mm. So the first thing is to show you what it actually looks like. like. When you think through what 
the creation of content really means to a business. So a company that has a million pages on one subdomain of a support site, argue with me about how much it costs per page. Like we think that it's about between a thousand and twelve hundred dollars per page from a a headcount cost to create Mm. editorial time, the back and forth that comes into that, the final review and any legal that it needs, probably about 1200, but tell me I'm wrong and tell me it's half, like whatever it is. If it's, if it's really 1200, then it's a $1.2 billion issue that you have. If, if, if you don't believe me and you think it's half, it's half a billion. Is yeah, that so it's 600 million bucks. Yeah. An asset. And then you, the next question is obviously, so what are, you, what are you doing with it? Like, how often do you maintain this asset? How are you maximizing the use of this asset? And we're finding that companies generally maintain about 10% of the content they own, tops, which means that 90% of it is sitting unmanaged in a repository or a set of repositories in a business filled with potential risk. Most of our customers live in regulated industries. Mm -hmm. So things are changing, rules are changing, content needs to change with it, and it's not. That becomes a real issue. So just helping people to understand that this thing that happens when you go to work, that email that you just created is part of a, a broader asset that your business has, and it should be treated as such. And if we can take this thing that you've spent all of this money on and make it more valuable, versus just continually making more and more and more and throwing it on the top of the pile, you're, you're going to see positive business results. Something that you just said really resonated with me just around the fact that most companies are just managing 10% of their content. What's interesting with a, with a platform like Acrolinks, you know, what I've realized, and especially I'm pretty active out there in social and I look back on my old content to understand like what, what fit and what didn't fit, et cetera. But even in that 90%, how much revenue they're probably leaving on the table by not understanding that better and understanding that mix of, hey, this worked really well for this segment or this group, whatever that was. And it was super aligned to how we want to be publishing. Why aren't we doing more like that? Right? Like there's got to be some some different some some difference in there or a component in there where you can even start to model out here's how much revenue we've lost over the last year because of the fact that we didn't have something that gave us that score, that Acrolink score, plus looked at, you know, what's resonating with our, with our customers and our prospects. That performance data changes the game because now you're in a position to literally dial up the impact. Like this is working. It is provably working for our business and, and delivering these benefits. How do we now take this pack of content that we already own, dial it up so that it does the same thing. And so, like you say, you can start modeling the revenue that you're going to see as a result of of content governance it's very real oh totally is i'm i'm curious just your perspective you mentioned that the chief experience officer role before should this sit in that seat or somewhere else in the organization it is a c level initiative that is a thing that we know c level leaders have to take an active role mm-hmm. in this broader customer experience um and what we find, so you going, who, who would get this? Who's going to understand what we're talking about? Well, the, the head of brand is going to yeah. understand this. Yeah. The head of brand generally sits in marketing. The head of brand doesn't have a, a team or a purview for execution. The head of brand is defining the brand either internally or with an outside agency, putting some product out in front of the organization 
and hoping to drive alignment. So that's, if that's the person that gets it, and that's been my experience, they get it. Like you're sitting in a meeting with them and they're like, I understand this is not who you're talking to one group right now. I've already gone to, I, in my mind, I have six groups. I see and understand the idea of broader governance, but that's not their job necessarily. Right. Or if it is, they're not empowered to do it. So now it's it's going up to who in the company cares about this. And the, the only answer, there's two answers. One of them is real and one of them is kind of real. CEO is the person that cares about this. CEO doesn't know that they care about this, but they care about this because this is the essence of what they do. This is mm -hmm. the global strategy of the business and how the business communicates. But that's not you're not going to see somebody's job description for a new CEO and have content governance be part of it. The other person that I, I, I reckon cares about this is whoever it is that cares about the company-wide email signature. If I could find that person in every business, that person understands what I'm talking about. Mm. Because every company has a global email signature. And that's the only thing. That's the only global aspect of a, of a business that is the same for everybody. And that person, again, probably somebody relatively lower level that sits in either marketing or IT, would understand this and be able to extrapolate out that, okay, I get it. I get what we're trying to do. I could run this. I could run this part of the business. But that doesn't, that's the one that doesn't seem real. Like, mm. I, I like the idea of it, but it doesn't seem real. They may also not have the influence that you're going to be looking for if you're looking to sell a platform like Acrolinks as well. Yeah. might be a longer um, road. No offense to them. So Acrolinks uses a really a term that I've never heard before and, and which I just love. And we've been talking a lot, a little bit about it, but you use a term content fitness. Yes. So, and I really love the context in which you all use it. So can you define content fitness for us and, and the, and, and the content cube that Acrolinks has? So the thing that has concerned me in my entire time here is the idea of, of referring to what we do as content quality. Mm. Content quality to me is something different. Content quality is a commodity. You get it as part of Google Docs and Microsoft Word. There are companies that sell content quality solutions for next to nothing, give it away for free. But the other problem is that quality is subjective. Calling any of this a, a quality play misses really the intent of what we're doing. We're trying to create content that's fit for purpose. That's, and it's different. There are companies in the world for whom, and, and maybe this is more hypothetical, bad quality content would be fit for their purpose. If you are a shifty offshore bank trying to bilk senior citizens out of their savings by getting them to sign documents they don't understand, signing away their, their finances, not, by the way, one of our customers, just saying this could be a thing, your idea of quality content would be garbage. Like things that unclear, hard to read, using words nobody understands, that would be content that's right for you. And so we need to be able to deliver for our customers, content that's fit for their purpose. Now, a more realistic example would be looking at the way that we think you should create content, because it's the way that we create content, lively, conversational, using simple language, lack of buzzwords, informal. That's what we think. That's fit content for us. Mm -hmm. It's not for, for instance, a large English bank. 
one of the London banks doesn't want to be cute and fun and informal. Fit for purpose for them is, is formal. That's, mm -hmm. that's the type of content they're trying to create. They're using very specific language designed by them for their audiences to drive the personality of their company. So this content of, of this concept of fitness is about identifying what content needs to be to solve the problem first. So what's the question being asked? Does this answer that question? Then from there, assuming that it does, does it answer it in the way that will be consumed by the audience that we're delivering it to? Cool. The next phase of that is going to be, is it relevant? Like, so are you creating the perfect piece of content on beekeeping and putting it on the National Milk Board website? Because if you are, it's not going to resonate. It's not that it's not perfect. It's not that it's not fit for some use. It is just not fit for our use. Yeah. And so what we're, what we're delivering, and you talk about how it's, the product must have evolved in the last 20 years, and it absolutely has. Content Cube, our most recent release, is that link to consumption analytics that allows us to see how these things resonate. Are we creating content that is fit? Prior to that, it's we're creating content that's great, but the fit aspect of it, does it work? Mm. It's not great unless it works. And that next step says it's working. Because here's the thing. Gartner did a survey several years ago you know, for people like me at much larger companies do you know what your audiences are looking to hear? Do you know how they want to hear it from you? And I think 80% of CMOs that were surveyed said, we, we have an idea, but we will acknowledge that we're guessing. And so if that's the case and we're guessing, how do we validate? And what we've done is given the ability to validate, to align around the model and validate the model's usefulness and iterate from there. And so when I got here, we talked a lot about strategy aligned content, your strategy, your content aligned, where I'm trying to get us to as we move into the future is audience aligned content. So I have an idea, this is what we're going to do, mm -hmm. put it out in the world, listen to the feedback of our audience through their consumption of this content, and iterate to get closer and closer to better results with that audience by understanding what drives their engagement. And that's where this gets really exciting because that, again, dialing up the volume on impact, making everything work better. Hmm. So look at Medallia, we talk a lot about customer signals. They're everywhere. It's not just sending a survey out. It's in your data, behavioral or otherwise. It's, in, it's on social, et cetera. I love that you're thinking about that. I mean, that really is the premise of the show. Be, you're, you're now being customer-led by taking these signals off of your content and what your customers are telling you about it through their engagement through it and what it's doing from a revenue perspective and then optimizing from there. Is that where you see, or I guess that still feels like an, and I guess my question is, that still feels like an enterprise-level view, right? Like when does, when does it get sort of more democratized and people at mid-sized companies now even thinking about it maybe in a different way to say, Hey, I'm looking for opportunities to differentiate against the big the big boys in the in the room all the time. It, do you see that? Do you see that sort of? Do you see the technology coming down market, so to speak, a little bit in terms size of company, or is it really more of an enterprise level solution? No, I mean, I I think I do, but for an interesting reason. So you look at some of these new sort of hyper growth brands, specifically in the consumer space, 
that are popping up. So if you look at in, in the UK at the banking industry where the, the stalwart banks are being competed with, mm-hmm. with banks named bill, like they pop up a bank, digital bank, and it comes out of nowhere and boom, it's backed by somebody huge and up it comes. And they're not the size of the organization that we currently see implementing solutions like this, but they're hiring people from those organizations that understand what you and I are talking mm-hmm. about right now, that understand the, the personality of a business and would have liked to have been able to implement that in their larger enterprise, but were unable to because of the silos in the business and the different ownership of content across the business. But they've moved and they have CEO level visibility and a smaller business and the ability to create that singular voice. And that's what they're setting out to do. And we don't go out and market to companies like that, but we are seeing companies like that come to us. Mm. And we see them now buying software for that purpose. We're a, I mean, we're a horizontal solution. I use our product and we're a very small company compared to the com- companies mm. that we sell to. But it's not just the scale, it's also the function. If you understand that one voice across a business, if you understand getting closer to your audience and content is critical to the personality and experience of your, of your product, mm. then this starts to make sense. And we would expect to see over the next three to five years, our product to continue to evolve to be able to support those types of companies even better. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, I've got two more questions for you, Chris, if you don't mind. One is, who are the leaders that you admire most in business and why? And and the last question I'm going to ask you for today, and this has been a great, this has been a fascinating conversation. So thank you again for your time. But the last one is, where do you go for inspiration? Maybe those two are two in the same, perhaps. But I mean, the, the one that I'll give this close to home is my current CEO, Walker Smith, is amazing. And if you're not following him on Instagram, you really should. He comes from a company called Search Metrics, but before that, PTC, HP, a number of large businesses, and couldn't be learning more than I'm learning from him. On a more broad level, I did have an opportunity several years ago to spend one fantastic evening out with Richard Branson and have been aggressively following him ever since. He's an amazing creative leader. And I think that the thing that I try to do is to add creativity to the process, a little bit of crazy. And I, I, I think that that's something that I, I admire in him. From an inspiration standpoint, this is corny and it sounds canned, but I actually just decided what I was going to say. It's really my team. I am the type of leader, like we've talked about my background and it's not a traditional growth model. Mm-hmm. I, don't have, I don't have all the experience that the people that I hire have, but I'm okay with that. My job is to, let's go all the way back to theater, cast the right people in the right roles, give them the context, the blocking and the priorities to allow them to do the best job that Mm -hmm. they can do. And I can't save the play on performance night. Like if it's not going well, there's nothing that the director can do to jump out of the audience and save it. Same thing here. I have to have people that know what they're doing, that can do it and that do it on a consistent basis. And a lot of the inspiration that I get is just coming in every day to the people that, that work in my organization, see the things that they're doing, see the way that they're growing. And that gets me wanting to continue to come to work every day. Love it. Love it. That's not a corny answer at all. I think it's an awesome answer. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's really been a fascinating and enlightening conversation. Love what you guys are doing and can't wait to see 
your many successes. Where can folks find you or the company? Like, What's the best way to get in touch if people want to know more? Uh, LinkedIn. I am CP Willis at LinkedIn. And then www.acrolinks.com. That's A-C-R-O-L-I-N-X.com. Cool. Awesome. Thanks so much again. Have a great weekend. All right, everybody. We're out. Thanks for listening to Be Customer-Led with Bill Stakos. We are grateful to our audience for the gift of their time. Be sure to visit us at BeCustomerLed.com for more episodes. Leave us feedback on how we're doing or tell us what you want to hear more about. Until next time, we're out.